I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slings. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? Let's send you out on the right note. Uh, PFF sucks. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs> wow. Friday is supposed to be the day where we ease into the weekend with a light show, with no news, with no nothing of significance, just, you know, the news dump when we get to the weekend. But instead, you've got Jurgen Klopp announcing he's walking away from Liverpool early this morning, uh, and apparently somehow we've got one of the, the most heavily weighted shows that we've constructed on the PFF NFL podcast for a while. So we are going to attempt to be tight today, Bradley. We're going to keep it Within the margins, we're going to keep it on topic, and we are going to fire through some topics one after the other. How's it going, good sir? Well, then my fault for uh, starting late, but look, they say PFF guys aren't athletes. I had to crush a Peloton, so, you know, hand up, but it's it's for the people. I appreciate you at least uh, acknowledging that and owning up to it right up top, because usually I'm the one in the chat getting blamed for the shows being late, even though pretty sure I'm usually in the chair every day you know, right when we need to be. And, and yet we don't always start on time. So this time, not me, Brad's fault. But as you say, a just cause, getting in the, uh, getting in the Peloton. Um, anyway, before we go anywhere, we've got to tell you about a special deal for the PFF listeners, the PFF Mock Draft Sim, where you can go and draft to your heart's content. Brad has been crushing the analytics, drafting a gazillion times for the Chicago Bears. So the second year in a row, because his Bears have been players at the top of the draft. 30 MDS, 3-0 MDS gets you 30% off your annual subscription. So go there, hammer the mock draft sim, find every possible combination of drafts to your heart's content, and use 30 MDS for 30% off. Um, that is absolutely a bargain worth taking on board if you're a PFF NFL podcast listener. Now, to some NFL news. Um, the Carolina Panthers. The job that looked like the one nobody wanted, they've managed to fill them both. And I think it's two pretty interesting moves. They have hired Dan Morgan, former Carolina Panthers player, obviously, and then personnel guy to their GM position. And then Dave Canales, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive coordinator, the man presiding over the Baker Mayfield uh, resuscitation job this year, has been hired to be their head coach. And a six-year deal, which, look, six-year deal, the trigger-happy owner, Dave gets his bag. Good work, Dave. You got to build the buyout. That, that's the key there. And just make sure that if you do get fired, you can pull a uh, Cliff Kingsbury, go to Thailand, and just you know hang out for a little bit. Uh, but yeah, look, there have been a couple there. Dan, Dan Campbell got a six-year deal in uh, Detroit. Uh, there's another one that's escaping me right now. But I Shanahan. think when you are taking a job where you know it's a bit of a rebuild, it's not going to be a quick fix. You, you have to get protection. On the Dan Morgan hire, I want this is a PSA for all future hiring cycles. Uh, this is the biggest gripe I had for this year. We need to stop looking at what a guy did the one year prior to getting the job. People that are like, oh, you're, you're going to promote the guy who was in the build. He worked for a decade in Seattle, building one of the best teams in football, then went to a high-ranked position with the Buffalo Bills and helped build out the Josh Allen contending NFL team in, in Buffalo. Yes, he was the assistant GM last year. Yes, it was not the greatest draft class or free agency, whatever. Let's like throw in a Google, hop on a Wikipedia, uh, and maybe look past what the guy did for the 12 months prior to getting a job. Yeah, like Dan Morgan's resume is actually pretty impressive when you look at the sort of the top jobs he's had, right? 
What 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 I always found curious about his progression through the the personnel ranks was right at the start he seemed to leap over seven different steps. He went from like bottom rung in the ladder to like third rung from the top in one jump in one year. He went like player, right? Retires is just a, a scout for the Seahawks back in 2010. Just a scout. The following year, he's assistant director of pro personnel. What? I mean, how good a scout was he that in, in 12 months we went, this guy needs to be running the show. And then in a couple of years' time, he's then director of pro personnel and then director of player personnel with the Bills, as he said, assistant GM, yada, yada. Like, that part makes perfect sense. We've been in and around the top position for a few years. But how did we go from scout to assistant director of, of pro personnel in 12 months? It, like you said, it obviously did a lot of good work. People, there, there's area scout, regional scout. Uh, you know, like there, he skipped like probably four rungs of the ladder yeah. in that move. Um, and, and yeah, like also being a former top ten pick, uh, you know, I, I do think matters to a degree as well at that linebacker position. You know, where, where everyone sees the field and you know have a high level of knowledge on the defensive side. Probably wore the green dot, all those things. Yeah, I just that's my big takeaway this year. Is I mean, again, I'm not telling everyone how to feel about hires. I get it, but like. Just maybe, you know, do a little bit of research before you have a, you know, a snap reaction to, to a hire. I will say, you know, the, the 2010 year, so I guess if you say that's the 2011 draft, you know, the 2011 draft for Seattle ended up with them getting K.J. Britt, uh, K.J. Wright, rather, um, Richard Sherman, Doug Baldwin. These guys all came from that draft. If, if Dan Morgan was responsible for all of them, then okay, I get it. If, if that was Dan's resume after 2010, I understand leaping him several rungs up the ladder and saying, actually, this guy should be, should be making all the calls in the building or most of the calls, let's go. Um, what kind of, what kind of, so, you know, we talked before about basically who would want this job, right? Carolina, the owner looks like he's on the meddling scale of the ownership thing. We're now talking six years represents a long-term project, a Lions type of project, but that doesn't sit with an owner that seems to have no patience and want to make a move every 12 months. What does this look like? Yeah, I think that, look, he might still meddle. And obviously there's the, the, the reporting is directly from Canales and Morgan straight to Tepper. You know, some people were saying maybe he'll actually empower a head football person where the people below them will report to him. And then there's one line of communication up to ownership, which it differs building to building. Like I believe Andy Reid reports directly to, to Lamar Hunt or whatever, whoever, whatever Hunt kid is now the, the owner of the Chiefs <laughs> with all due respect. Like, so it does differ, but but I still think at a high level, Tepper has to, to a degree, understand if you are going to promote a guy internally, he also, for example, they moved on from Samir Suleiman, who was a very empowered person. Throughout the entire draft process last year, all you heard was Samir Suleiman has the ear of Dave Tepper, and he's going on these meetings and these, and these trips. He's now out. So, like, they are making fundamental changes to this whole makeup, whole approach, but I think they do get it. I mean, the Canales hire is also a signal of – we're trying to fix this quarterback, and that is where everything builds out from there. The guy that had his hands on the Geno Smith revival obviously did a great work with Baker Mayfield this past year, dropping their average time to throw dramatically, dropping their pressure to sack rate pretty precipitously as well. Let's build from there and go out. I know it's a quick hire, one-year OC. Credit to him. Bet on himself. Took an OC job. What You could probably label that as like, a oh, what if you know Todd Bowles gets fired and then you kind of stick your neck out. Instead, he, he is a head coach with a six-year deal. 
And particularly early in the season, one of the characteristics of that offense was, you know, Baker's numbers on third down were insane. His his PFF grade wasn't necessarily insane, but Dave Canales was doing an incredible job of finding the right play on third down to give Baker the option and to keep the chains moving and to therefore have more success in the offense. And okay, that that died off a little bit as the year wore on, but I think generally the offense usually had the right place to go with the football for Baker. And then the question was whether he was going to execute it or not. I do think that that's a really nice hire in terms of somebody needs to come in here and rescue Bryce Young. Who's going to be that guy? Is it going to be, you know, PFF Bobby? Who is it? I, I think Canales is a good option to pin your hopes on, try and rescue Bryce Young and try and create something from him. Because, you know, the first year of his career, it's been bad, but doesn't mean it's going to be terminal, right? Matthew Stafford has one of the worst first years we've ever seen from a rookie quarterback in the NFL, very similar to Bryce Young in terms of EPA per play. Bryce's grade was actually better than Stafford's, but that's the kind of territory we're plumbing here, right? It's it's bad quarterbacks. It's guys like Blaine Gabbert, but Matthew Stafford as well. So it doesn't mean that Bryce Young can't be good, but now Dave Canales' task, obviously, is to be that guy. Um we need to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Prize Picks. Of course, Eli has a Prize Picks lineup for this week, fresh off the glow of his first real victory of the season. Yeah, sure, he's had some uh, flex play victories, but the first clean sweep last week of victories. This week, he's going with Christian McCaffrey getting more than 0.5 rushing yards. That feels like a, uh, a pretty good bet. Travis Kelsey. To have more than 39.5 receiving yards. Amonra St. Brown to have more than 59.5 receiving yards. And then Gus the Bus Edwards to have more than 37.5 rushing yards. All those four things come in. You and Eli will be absolutely laughing your way to the, uh, to the winnings. Price Picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. The easiest and most exciting way to play DFS. It's just you against the numbers. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. Uh, if you want to play alongside some of Prize Picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz, you can now find community plays under the promos tab of the app to view the entries from some of the biggest names in the Prize Picks community each week. Prize Picks also offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you've got a player that exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Price Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. So go to pricepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's pricepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Uh, prize picks, pick more, pick less. It's that easy. All right, other big bit of news uh, to come out of yesterday. Raheem Morris has been hired as the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Um, this one is interesting on a, on a number of levels. Number one, a lot of people hate this hiring. So what are your thoughts on the Raheem Morris to Atlanta uh, job? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're when you're positioned against Bill Belichick, I, I understand why some people might be frustrated by it. Um, I, I think it's a good hire. I think Morris has shown uh, an ability to adapt to different schemes, did not run kind of what Brandon Staley was running in L.A. when he first got there in 2021, um, and did, based on accounts from Jalen Ramsey and a bunch of other players, more adapt to them than make them adapt to him. Right. Um, this past year, I mean, look, Kobe Turner is on the top five list for defensive rookies of the year, uh, deservedly so. Byron Young, the underlying metrics aren't as strong, but was top five in sacks among rookies uh, as well. You know, Jacoby D- Durant and all these young players that have played very well for Raheem Morris. My thing is, some people I've seen comment on the Bucks tenure. The takeaway should be that he got a head coaching job at 33. He inherited like a kind of older, bloated roster that needed to be torn down. The guy went 10-6 and six with Josh Freeman at quarterback, and they didn't make the playoffs that year, which is a whole different conversation. But Josh Freeman, I think, played one more year in the NFL after that and has not played a down since. So I think he's clearly a very good coach. You had Thomas Dimitrov come out and say stuff about him. There's the video of Les Snead going around from the Rams talking about him. There's a Mike Tomlin clip saying he's the best coach he's ever been around. Um, like, clearly you have to listen at some time. You know, I'm not always an appeal to authority guy. I get We get some of this messaging, but... I think it's very, very clear that he's a very good football coach. I know it's also kind of funny. He was interim there like two, three years ago. Um, but, you know, by all accounts, this looks like a good hire. And you saw it on the field in L.A. They did not have talent. Uh, and the defense was good enough to get to, to get to the playoffs. And he's the guy that often gets forgotten about as being, you know, the, the coach in that Shanahan tree that's in the in the room with those Washington coaches back in 2013. You know, the, the graphic of all of them. He's the guy that always gets overlooked. And yet when you listen to that Jordan Rodriguez uh, series, the play, the play callers, um, when it was talking about all those Shanahan coaches, they all talked up Raheem Morris as, you know, being a guy and being a, a smart coach and being a really I- intriguing mind. And I also think, okay, his, uh, as far as I'm aware, they haven't named an offensive coordinator there yet. But from what I understand, the reports are that, that Zach Robinson, PFF Zach, is one of the front runners to go with him to be part of that head coaching thing. So if, if Raheem Morris is bringing his defensive acumen to the table, Zach Robinson is bringing the Sean McVay, Shanahan coaching tree offensive acumen to the table. The two of them combined, I mean, that does feel like a really intriguing uh, option if they can find a quarterback. I mean, this was the same thing we, the big holdup with the Bill Belichick thing potentially is where's my quarterback coming from? So if they can get Zach Robinson, if it ends up being him, being a quarterback, now you've got B. John Robinson, a good offensive line, Kyle Pitts, Drake London, you've got weapons. And we have a good defensive coach. Let's go. Also, my favorite thing, it's purely anecdotal, but he was the receivers coach in Atlanta for three years. So he's he's coached on both sides of the football, which I just fall in love with every time. Uh, it's a massive signal for me that you must be sharp if you've coached on offense and defense. Whether or not that's true is, is a conversation for a different day. But, yeah, you know, I, I think the thing there when you're talking about, too, maybe they made a decision of we're not going to try to, like, rush back into this. Arthur Blank has had a lot of messaging about kind of chasing the end of the Matt Ryan era, how difficult it made the situation with all the dead cap. They still have the record for the biggest dead cap hit of all time for a single player at $40 million. Although that'll be, that'll be doubled this offseason by Denver. But um, but yeah, so it's more of, okay, we're actually going to be patient. I think number eight for the draft at quarterback becomes maybe more likely. Do they trade up to you know three with New England if they don't fall in love with Drake May or Jaden Daniels or, or whoever is there? I just think it's instead of like, yeah, let's get Kirk Cousins, let's chase this thing right now, it becomes let's build this thing out. We have good talent, like you just talked about, a lot of young players on both sides of the football. Um, let's build a consistent, sustained winner, not you know chase a ring in the three years that Bill Belichick wants to coach our team. 
And that's the, so that that's the other element of this is the the joke that we were making for a while that that Atlanta would blow a 28-3 lead with Bill Belichick happened to come to pass. Uh, they didn't get the Bill Belichick thing over the line. Uh, all the reports were that that they wanted it to happen. Arthur Blank in particular liked the idea of Bill Belichick being the coach, but they couldn't come to an agreement on what it was going to look like. And it kind of sounds like it was the organizational part of it that was going to be the problem, right? Again, one of the things, one of the the challenges, I guess, of, of hiring Bill Belichick as your head coach now is do you give him the keys to the franchise? Do you give him lock, stock, and barrel, exactly what he had in New England, total and complete control, regardless of what the structure had been at your franchise before that, knowing that it might only be that way for a couple of years? Like, can you even do that? Can you turn a franchise over to one guy for like three years and not have a structure in place that makes sense once he's gone. So I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, there's now what, one job available still at this point? Two, Washington and Seattle. Washington having reportedly sort of zeroed in on their candidate, and that one might not actually be available at the moment. But we're running out of chairs for Bill Belichick to sit in by the time the season rolls around. Are we now entering a world where, because he – it sounds like he wants to get that Don Shula record, right? So he needs 15 more wins, which is probably two seasons worth, um, at least, depending on where he goes. Is he going to have to do the, uh, the, the Sean Payton thing? Are we going to see Belichick on Fox for a year before the next coaching cycle and he gets a chance? Or how is this thing going to go? I think so. Uh, at this point, like Seattle, why would you move on from Pete Carroll and then hire another right. guy who's the same age, right? Like, um, again, not that's like, you know, a one-to-one -one comparison, but it would be a, a little bit strange to go that route. And yeah, so I think he takes a year off, something else comes open, maybe he builds out his cachet of, look, there are two things that I think are prevalent in this coaching cycle that have been building, but more and more. The first being, like you just talked about, how much control, how much power does the head coach get? The messaging out of Tennessee, for example, has been very strong that they want the, the personnel people to run personnel and the coach to work with them, um, not the coach to have those guys work for them. Bill Belichick, I'm sure, and he deserves to ask for it. I get it. And look, Jim Harbaugh just won that power struggle in L.A. Uh, he is going to have three-man roster control, I'm sure. I don't know that for a fact, but it, it, it looks that way which the Chargers have never done. But anyway, the second piece is we hear these interviews, how they ask them so often, who is your staff going to be around you? And in particular for defensive coaches, there was a quote from, I think it was Ben Albright, who said that Raheem Morris got asked, not only who's your OC going to be, but if PFF Zach Robinson gets hired away, who's your next OC going to be? Like it was that level. And I mean, Bill Belichick probably says, yeah, there's this guy, Josh McDaniels, that, you know, players mutinize against 15 games into every season. He'll be my first OC. After that, I'll hire, you know, I don't know, Matt Patricia or Joe Judge. And that's not appealing, right? So right. I think those are the two big pieces there. Take a year off, rebuild, the, you know, restock the, 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 you know, the holster. Or if not, look, go back, go to Vanderbilt where your dad coached. I, no one's against that, that I've talked to. No one's against him just going to coach the Vanderbilt Commodores. But you're also... Um... It is interesting. You now need to almost have a succession plan in place for offensive coaches because we're in a world where, I mean, there was that stat that every single team in the NFL has changed their offensive coordinator since the 2022 offseason. So like two cycles, the entire league has flipped, has turned over their offensive coordinator for various reasons, whether they've been hired away, they've been fired because they haven't been good enough, whatever. Every single team over two years has changed their offensive coordinator. So if you're hiring a guy, for example, on a six-year contract, 
unless you're the brains of the operation on offense, like unless you are, you know, Kyle Shanahan, you're like, I'm bringing my system, doesn't matter who my OC is, it's me every year. If you're not that, you need to know not just who the guy is, but who's the next guy. When he gets hired away, who are you giving the keys to? Because you're not doing it. So I think, I mean, it's a smart thing, I think, for teams to recognize that trend and want answers to those questions. I don't know how realistic it is that you'll get a good one at this point, like in the... You know, in the process, I think part of that is you figure out over the course of the year or two before that guy gets poached away who the, you know, who his replacement can be if you have one in-house. But it's definitely the way the league is going right now. Um, we have a couple of questions that have come in that I want to get to. But first, uh, it's very much like, you know, insurance. What else is like insurance is actual insurance. Life insurance from the good people at Fabric. Um, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance policies to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the, now is the time to get it done, and you can focus on whatever else the, the year has in store for you. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Uh, all right, let's see. Where we go? We've got questions that have come in. Let me find them. Uh, this one came in from somebody named Stefan Streisberger, who made it clear to point out that he was from Austria, not Australia, in case we were going to get that screwed up. Um, he had a few questions, only one of which I'm going to read out, but because uh, it's sort of relevant to the, the conversations we've been talking about. Uh, and it's a, it's a fairly simple procedural question, which I think you should be able to answer. So uh, do all assistant slash position coaches or coordinators have clauses in their contracts so that they can leave if they get an offer as a head coach or do they need to be bought out? That topic is talked about far less than, say, transfer fees in soccer. Uh, does every coordinator have the goal to become a head coach, or do you think there are coordinators who like being coordinators and prefer that position, designing plays instead of taking additional responsibilities of a head coach? So from a structural point of view, how does this whole process work where we just go and interview a bunch of coordinators and they get the head coaching jobs? Theoretically, those guys are under contract, right? Yeah, so there has been a bunch of you know new rule changes in the recent <coughs> you know, past couple of years about you know how you can block certain jobs, uh, for both GM and head coach or secondary football executive and the coordinator positions. If it's a promotion, you cannot block it. I don't think there's buyouts for position coaches elevating to coordinator level. I suppose I could be wrong there, but I, I do not believe that is the case. Um, and yeah, like if, if it's an elevation, if you're getting a true promotion, um, then you can, yeah, you can do whatever you'd like. You can talk to those people. There are, of course, Rooney Rule, two minority candidates for head coach at least one minority candidate for a coordinator position. Um, you know, there's a lot of different constructs around it. But um, the second piece to me is the far more fascinating question that I'm becoming a little bit fascinated with in that I think maybe there is a bit of a, I don't know what the right word to put on it, but I'll use an example for Steve Spagnola, who probably could be vying for head coach jobs, obviously was a head coach for the Giants, I want to say, a, a long time ago. 
where you get a coordinator that is maybe a little bit on the older side, isn't some young upshot, 32-year-old, whatever, but is now building the one of the best defenses in the entire NFL in Kansas City. You have that continuity. You have that staying power. I think it's an edge. And it's obviously not like this easy you know, thing to accomplish, and there's no guarantee. I mean, even look at Vic Fangio bouncing after a year in Miami to go to Philadelphia. But I do think if you're not in love with some you know, young riser, find a guy that you don't think has head coach aspirations. Like I think Wink Martindale, for example, he did for a while. I don't know if whether he chose not to or maybe the league kind of chose not to go that direction. But I think it's a, it's an underappreciated edge. If you can find a coordinator that's that's happy being a really, really good coordinator, running his side of the football, um, you know, your hands off with his side of the ball, and he's content with that as a you know, full-time gig. Particularly for guys that have done it you know they're taking the swing at head coach maybe it didn't go well maybe it did whatever but if they've done it it's they've had that shot now they've experienced it and maybe they're now content to just take the easier existence for the next for the next period of time like the job security particularly for somebody like Spagnolo, who is under Andy Reid like they're going to be good every year you're probably going to have a job until Andy Reid decides he's done where's the downside like why would you go on why would you voluntarily sort of search out something with way less job security, with way more stress and hassle and difficulty and trying to craft a, a whole roster somewhere else? Um, okay, you're going to get more money and, there, and a bit more respect out of it because you're the head guy, but there's a whole world of negatives attached to that as well. And if you've already done the whole go-around once before, I think a lot of these guys have just reached the point in their life where they're like, I don't need that pain in the ass. Like, I, w there's, there's not enough in it for me to, you know, to want to go in that direction. Yeah, and, and I think it's obviously harder, I think, on the offensive side of the ball. And I do feel like one example that I, I used to point to, he obviously was not great this year in New Orleans by himself, but... You know, Pete Carmichael was just the Saints OC for like 16 years with Sean Payton. And I'm look, I'm sure he still provided a ton of value. Maybe just isn't great at play sequencing and actually running the show himself. But still, there was that continuity year to year where Payton probably knew, okay, this guy can take take care of a lot of these responsibilities. Where if you're a Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay, you're literally grooming a new guy every single offseason, maybe even multiple, right? Like you might even yeah. lose your pass game coordinator and your, you know, your OC or your quarterback's coach, whatever. I just, yeah, I think it's a, an underappreciated element maybe of, you know, just, just if you, again, like if you, there's a young guy you like, go for it. But if there's not, don't just chase it and just, you know, go for that stability. Yeah. Or, you know, both coordinators in an off season. I mean, there's value to having a guy that, you know, is probably not going to leave the second the unit starts playing well, just because he's, he values the stability more than the, the advancement and the, you know, the ambition of being the head guy. So I, I agree. I absolutely think there's an edge there. Uh, this next question came in from Chuck uh, Camella. Greetings. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Keep up the good work and good luck with the podcast awards. Did I leave in that intro just to be able to remind you to go vote for us in the podcast awards? Who can say? You know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you at this point that you can find the link either in the description of this show or in my pinned tweet at PFF underscore Sam and that the voting for this thing closes in like 48 hours. So time is running out to get on your phone and vote for us to win an award so that all of us can be award-winning podcast creators. Us and you, our PFF NFL podcast community. Anyway... Uh, in summary, uh, in an attempt to find out how valuable you all think that the best head coaches are uh, and how many difference-making head coaches there are, my questions are, if you are a GM, uh, if the head coach's salary had to be counted against the salary cap, how much would you pay 
your head coach. And then a second part of this question uh, was effectively sort of if, if there was a fantasy draft, high, high, how high up would you be drafting head coaches relative to players, et cetera? But I'm really interested in that first part. This, if the idea that the, that the salary cap extended to the coaching staff, how much, like what percentage of the cap would those guys be chewing up? Because that's a constant conversation with quarterbacks, right? This world of, you know, Tom, Tom Brady had the record for the highest percentage of a salary cap taken up by a quarterback that had won the Super Bowl at like 12 now it's Mahomes, I think, with 17, but there's that you know long-standing thing of every quarterback that makes the Super Bowl is taking up a very small percentage of the cap with a couple of exceptions, right? Up until, or I think up until now, the three quarterbacks to have won a Super Bowl with more than, is it 10% of their cap taken up, are named Brady, Manning, and Mahomes. So if you're going to have a quarterback taking up a chunk of your salary cap, he had better be one of the best to ever play the game. Otherwise, it doesn't look like it's likely to happen. So if that's the case for quarterbacks, how much should it be for coaches? I think the corollary is perfect because I actually think the market. Hmm. A Kyle Shanahan, a Sean McVay, then I'm willing to go to the 50, 60 million. Pre- not that same, but, you know, the top of the market. I think the issue is, and I'm not going to use a name and be mean, but the Daniel Jones equivalent head coach <laughs> that is a, a a good, serviceable, top 15, 18 quarterback who's still going to make 80% of what the Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan's are making, I think that sinks you. So I thought the question was going to be more tied to you know draft capital with the whole Sean Payton trade. And like I would trade three first-round picks for Sean McVay right now with, with a, within the blink of an eye. I really feel that way. I'll tie it to PFF war as well. The best quarterback seasons are around four to five wins above replacement. I think Sean McVay was like a four war head coach this year. Like I think you put a replacement level coach to, to run the Rams this season and the nine wins is five. Like I I really do think that's what it looks like to me. So, you know, the number is, I'm not going to say they're making quarterback money, but the top coaches right now allegedly make about 20 million, although that was Bill Belichick. So I guess that's no longer the data point. I'll say that the top play makes 15, right? I'm paying the top guys a lot. I really, really am. I just think my cutoff point is like six names maybe. And then I'm just like, yeah, I'll just try to find the next, you know, find the next guy. It does seem very, very like quarterback, right? Like it's, and to the point where, okay, forget for a moment, we were talking about how much of the salary cap should they take, should they take up? The fact that they're not tied to the salary cap kind of suggests that actually Bill Belichick or whoever, like Jim Harbaugh this year, right? Jim Harbaugh, if he comes in, he was making eight and a half or something at Michigan. Presumably he's going to get paid more than that at, at the Chargers. Maybe he's the new market leader right now. But if he's, let's say he's 15, I mean, we might be underpaying Jim Harbaugh by $30 million a year when you compare it to the top quarterbacks in the NFL. I mean, compare it to Herbert, for example. Like Justin Herbert got his bag and it hasn't been enough to improve the Chargers to where they presumably want to get to. If Harbaugh the different like it's probably similar right so the fact that the coaches are not governed by a salary cap and are not artificially suppressed by that sort of suggests to me that they, those guys are wildly underpaid at the top of the market and then yeah I, I agree it gets more complicated and you probably need more information if we're talking about a salary cap involving them as well because the cap would need to go up right for a start we're, we're adding a whole coaching staff into this thing but I do kind of feel like it should be in the same ballpark as quarterback. Like, those guys should probably be taking up a similar volume of your cap, but maybe 
maybe what you're talking about is true that the drop off happens at a different different point. Like if you have QB one, head coach one should probably be making similar sums of money, but maybe the head coaching one only extends to four or five, whereas maybe the quarterback extends to eight or nine before you start to hit the drop off. Yeah, it's simple planet theory. Just like how many right. humans walking the earth can do, you know, can be a top eight quarterback is a very much so smaller list than how many coaches can be a top fifteen NFL head coach in any given window or any given season. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a phenomenal question, and, and I do really think the Peyton trade was interesting because it was the first coaching trade <coughs> of substance. I think Bruce Arians, like the Cardinals, got like a sixth, but where it was the rookie wage scale too, right? So I remember I was looking at that from the standpoint of. You know, older trades, Bill Belichick and, and Holmgren and um, all these guys. But it is a different question when, you, when you're giving up an asset that's way more in a surplus value tied to it. And it's not these old first round picks where maybe you're paying, you know, Sam Bradford was like five years, $80 million, whatever it was. It's a different calculus. But yeah, the, the, the elite ones are worth a ton. Um, our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that gives whole body health. I drink it every single day. I gave a AG1 a try because, frankly, I have an atrocious diet. And any kind of nutrients you can get in, particularly when it's in an easy, convenient uh, form, such as just a drink right with your coffee, absolutely covers all your, your nutritional bases every single day. Uh, gives you a total... Uh, whole body health improvement, an absolute boost to energy, immune system support. Hated taking all the pills, all the vitamins. This way you get it all in one simple drink. I drink AG1 in the mornings, right with the coffee, before any kind of working out, before starting your day, before getting to work. It makes you feel unstoppable. And it's a way you too can be just like your favorite athletes. Sure, you might not be able to run a 4-5-40. Sure, you not, might not be able to bench 225 15 times. But you can treat your body the way they do with AG1. Uh, all great athletes have that thing in common. They take care of their bodies, and a huge part of that starts with optimizing whole body health. Uh, a lot of them also drink AG1, and that's why I'm a huge fan. With every daily serving, I'm setting myself up for success with 75 high-quality ingredients that give me key daily nutrients and support energy, focus, strength, and clarity. It's a micro habit that delivers macro benefits and helps just about everybody take care of their health every single day. Uh, I also like that it costs less than $3 a day. It's really effective daily habit with high quality source ingredients, win-win. Uh, if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com PFF. That's drinkag1.com PFF. Check it out. Um, all right, last uh, email question that came in. This one is from Alexandra Dupont, or Dupont, depending on how French he is. Um, I have a team building question, but more specifically on unit building, and I think the Giants offensive line is a good example. How should you approach a very bad unit that you already invest a lot in? Uh, the line is very bad, but two of the bad spots are recent high draft picks. How should they try and fix that? Um, believe that they are bad and use new high draft picks to replace people like Evan Neal at right tackle, or use late draft picks and make them compete, bring in cheap veterans, what is the answer there? So I think there's a very interesting kind of conversation dynamic there between how to handle sunk costs on specific units, the Giants offensive line in this case, but more broadly, like how quickly can you decide, okay, this is a sunk cost now and we just need to keep swinging because we didn't get it right versus 
we have investment here. Let's try and make that investment come good. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm also curious if for the second person, he if he's referring to John Michael Schmitz, he was a rookie center. I would give him some time there. I know his grade probably isn't super strong for us, but a good prospect center it can be tough adjusting to playing with eight different quarterbacks probably didn't make his life much easier. If he's referring to Josh Azudu, also has like never had stability of a position he's playing. Anyway, you know, I, I think you do need to not be afraid to, to reinvest. I would probably go more so the mid-tier veteran route and, and, and establish a higher floor and have a succession plan and make sure that you're not, you know, really bringing the entire unit down with it, with a weak link that just ruins every, every other operation. At the same time, though, there are scenarios, like if you're the Philadelphia Eagles, you take Jalen Ragor, you immediately identify it that didn't work, and you take Devontae Smith and trade for A.J. Brown, you know, a couple of years later. And they also, well, it took J.J. Ortega-Whiteside before that, too. So, like, sometimes it's, it's okay to keep kind of, you know, going after it and... You know, depending on the unit, offensive line, when you have the quarterback under contract, when you've now, you know, Wondell Robinson second round, Jalen Hyatt third round, you trade for Darren Waller, like, you're kind of wasting everything else if you don't get the offensive line, at least just to, like, around league average level. So I'm, I'm not opposed to it. You know, maybe don't use your, what, fifth overall pick or sixth overall pick on another tackle, but if it lines up that way, if, if you know, the receivers don't fall the way you'd like and Joe Alt or Olu Fashanu sitting there, like, I'm not saying don't do it. Yeah, the Evan Neal one, I think, is the the difficult thing. It's like, how quickly do you give up on a guy that, you know, was a really high draft pick, was a really uh, impressive prospect, and has shown nothing so far in the NFL? Like, you know, I, I think that whole concept of sunk costs, particularly when it comes to draft picks, is a really difficult balance to to find because we know there's plenty of situations where you change a coach, you change the environment, you change the system a little bit, and suddenly a player that looked terrible is completely reborn right and it's like oh clearly he wasn't the problem something else was and once you change the scenery he's fixed but i almost wonder if the best way of approaching that is to say um so you know somebody else can find that like we're not going to we're not going to try and revamp everything to re rescue this one guy if it hasn't worked out for us within two years let's trade him away let's get something back for him and if somebody else can fix him good luck to them it's a particularly funny conundrum, too, because the, the the lows were never as low. But, I mean, Andrew Thomas struggled out of the gate as well. Yeah. And then in his, what, third season was one of the best left tackles uh, in the entire NFL. So, again, there's no guarantee that happens again. But you have a very recent example of patience paying off in a huge, huge way. So, yeah, I think my bigger thing, though, is I, I would probably still, if I'm them, like they have so many needs, another edge rusher opposite Kayvon Thibodeau or, you know, insert whatever you think could be a big need there. Maybe you don't use your early pick on it, but this tackle class is loaded. If you're sitting there with their second round pick, they have two of them uh, because of a sharp trade of Leonard Williams, too. Uh, there's no issue for me going for a Tyler Guyton or, you know, insert early second round pick type tackle. Uh, Jordan Morgan, Patrick Paul, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have no issue with it. Remember, if you want to send us any emails, questions, or comments, anything at all, really, uh, NFLpodcast at pff.com is our email address, and that will get straight through us. Brad, I asked uh, this to Trevor earlier in the week. Have you experienced the wonder that is Jimmy's uh, famous seafood? One time, a long time ago, but it, it was, it hit. It hit. We have a special offer for the good listeners of the PFF NFL podcast. If you use the co promo code PFFNFLPOD, PFFNFLPOD, uh, you will get free shipping off any order of $125 or more. The crab cakes are insane. They are absolutely amazing. I have multiple of them sitting in the freezer right now that I'm going to have to use over the weekend. The crab cake egg rolls are 
I can't come up with words to describe how good the crab cake egg rolls are. They come with a sauce as well that's just absolutely insane, but those things are amazing. They have a whole bunch of stuff that you can get and order and ship anywhere in the country. Frankly, go build your own box, throw a whole bunch of awesome stuff in there. They are absolutely insane. I've been telling you all week, Steve has been telling you, Trevor hasn't tried it, so Trevor doesn't know. We've had to tell him, but Brad has tried it, and Brad will vouch for the awesome that is the crab cakes. Yeah, plus, you know, Ty has a, a Cincinnati slash Cleveland palate, so I, does his opinion really, like, factor into, you know, all that much? Uh, no, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if Tyler. Tyler, have you, had the, off. have you had the Jimmys? Oh, you meant Trevor. Tyler doesn't eat seafood, so now I'm just okay. picking on Ty. You said Trevor. Well, Trevor's Florida, so you'd think he'd know seafood. So he I guess should know. He Trevor doesn't have an excuse. He should have experienced yeah. Jimmy's before now, and frankly, it's a it's a it's an omission. It's a mistake by him that he hasn't. But you guys can rectify that mistake. Go get yourself a box of awesome Jimmy seafood stuff. PFF NFL Pod is the promo code to get free shipping off that thing. Get it sent to you. Have it for the games. And thank us later. We've had multiple people send in to say they've used the promo code. They've gotten it. Baltimore, you know, they've only got a couple of weeks left, right? Whether they win this week or not, time is running out for the Ravens to be front and center in this thing, which means our connection with Jimmy's may be running out. So take advantage of it while you can. And right now, we're going to kick over to the Boo Boo Breakdown with Vic. All right, welcome into a championship edition of the Boo Boo Breakdown with our guy Vic Troja. Vic, only two games this week, only uh, three games left for the entire season. So let's take them, I think, game by game, team by team, and focus on kind of the biggest issues uh, involved. Let's start with the Chiefs. Um, Joe Tooney dealing with a pec injury. Didn't sound like the, the worst case scenario from that, but it does sound like it's going to keep him out of the game. Yeah, especially with a pec injury like he suffered. It was late in the game, and... Um, when you deal with something like this where it's enough of a risk for a severe injury to occur if he gets more stress and strain on that pec, uh, they're going to just play it um, more for his benefit. You know, uh, it's one of those injuries that if you fully tear your pec, this could be a major surgery and a huge offseason loss. So I don't think not only pain-wise, but just injury risk-wise, it'd be even worth for him to play. So um, if Chiefs end up pulling off a victory, mm -hmm. uh, I could see him back for the Super Bowl. But management right now is just purely to try to get him as healthy as possible. And then uh, mm -hmm. Isaiah Pacheco is probably the other significant, um, significant player with yeah. uh, an injury deal going into that game. Injury, injury for Isaiah Pacheco was interesting because I did not really see where he was hobbling at all. I mean, he was in, I mean, to the very last snap, right? right. And uh, but he has, he's actually dealing with toe slash ankle injuries. Um, didn't practice Wednesday. To to me, this is just a maintenance thing. This is like, hey, listen, yeah. like you've done enough this year. Like you just ran the ball to the ground last game. You were you were probably sore. Uh, but and obviously, we, and we need you, and we need you. So don't get hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is something where um, they're definitely trying to just keep him fresh, and he doesn't need to be running extra drills and stuff like that at practice with, this week with a ankle and toe issue. At the same time, um, for them to be that specific, when you see something like this pop up, where it's just like ankle and toes, and and 
there is something there. There is something bothering him there. Um, might want to watch out for it uh, just to see if he's taped up or if um, he has any signs of re-aggravation. This might be one of the maybe the first time that his running style, which is just a sort of a punchline at this point, actually comes back to be a factor. I mean, a guy that runs that hard, bounces his feet into the turf that hard, when you're now dealing with a toe slash ankle injury, maybe it's a bigger problem than it would be for a different running back. Yeah, well, like, I mean, when I rewatched that game and his, so they're, they're on their last drive and everybody in, and their mom knows in this ballpark, in, in, in this game, that Pacheco's gonna run the ball to finish off, Chiefs just need a first down. He gets nine yards, and I felt so bad for Klein as he's going in and 30-something-year-old backup linebacker filling in, and he gave him everything he had to Pacheco to try and tackle him and bounced off like a rag doll. This guy is powerful. So if you're dealing with toe, ankle issues right now, I mean, he's going to push through it. The adrenaline, everything, the big game, all of that's going to be there, but he might be hobbled a little bit, and especially if they do win, it'd be interesting to see if they just kind of follow the same protocol next game. All right, the Baltimore Ravens yep. um, in the other team from that game. Key players on both sides of the ball. Let's start with Mark Andrews. Is he going to be back in this game after what he's been dealing with all season? Yeah, you know, it was still with the left ankle. Um, I think what they're going to be doing is they're going to be splitting time with him and Isaiah Likely. Uh, this today specifically being Friday is going to be a really good chance for him to try to test it out and uh, he'll if, if he's good to go which I think is there's a decent chance um, he could he could be splitting time with Isaiah likely I do not see him coming back and just being full go like a hundred percent of snaps I think that what they're going to do is utilize him in certain packages utilize him for his skill set and what they want him to do and then give him his opportunity for rest outside of that yeah I mean they don't need him to play the every down role that they might have had him in before because we've seen the emergence of Isaiah likely you know without him like they they've shown they can get by without him so if they get him back at all it's a bonus I I don't think they it wouldn't make any sense to then go well let's put him in a hundred percent of the time right and and really give him the max workload it's like getting him back at all is is a win so let's just sprinkle him in here or there and see if we can add value to what we're doing yeah and sam you know too we talked about this briefly before um this year how it doesn't make sense when you put in a player necessarily saying oh they're like 75 percent or have that risk with with mark andrews this is just a different situation this is somebody who you're going to put in when you need them and need their skill set and certain plays but don't waste his energy going in on a play that you know like Isaiah likely would be able to perform at that task so and then the other side of the ball um one of their most critical defensive backs Marlon Humphrey obviously missed the last game um is he going to be back for this one yeah so his calf injuries had him out since the 31st and um I I don't know I I really think that if he comes back he has a pretty high risk of injury but I don't I don't see him necessarily um pushing through something like this if it's if it's that sore when you uh, come back as um, a skill player with a calf injury like this, you have above a 20% injury risk, um, re-aggravation risk. And he's sitting at that He's sitting at that point. And I, I actually kind of wanted to pick your brain on this and see your thoughts. So it, Marlon Humphrey is in a defense where they primarily play zone. 71% of the time the Ravens are playing zone. And then you're looking at their opponent in the Chiefs and you're looking at their wide receiver core. And I think outside of Rasheed Rice, you're kind of dealing with a bunch of players that, you know, aren't going to blow the tops off, right? And you, I mean, Pat Mahomes could sit there and throw to a high school squad and probably be productive. So 
they don't really need Rashi, or I mean, they don't really need him to shadow Rashi Rice or right. anything like that and go man up. So if they're going to be playing primarily zone, I put a little bit less risk on him re-aggravating this injury. But at the same time, from your perspective, do you think that is even a value to put somebody out there that might not be 100% when they might not be covering, let's say, the most skilled wide receivers that could be put out there? Yeah, I mean, I think it really comes down to how far off 100% he is. Like, that's, I think, always the difficult juggling act for teams is we have a guy, we know he's our best player, but he's 80%, he's 90%. At what point is that line worse than the next guy in the depth chart mm -hmm. for them? Um, and I, I don't know if they, I don't know if it's possible to tell that before you go into the game and you see what he's actually able to do. Because yeah. all this, like 80%, it's all guesswork, right? It's not, it's not like there's a scientific bar somewhere that's saying, oh, look, he's 83% now. We're guessing how good he is or how close to 100% he is. And somewhere in the middle there is a line where he's no longer the best option you have. And the backup, even though he's a, an obviously worse player, He's 100% or he's much closer to 100% and he takes over as being a better option. So, yeah, I, it's a difficult one to know, I think, before you get into the game. But I think it's one that you could probably, all right, let's give him the chance to be better. And then if it becomes obvious within a couple of drives that he isn't, we'll make the switch again. Yeah, I do, I do wonder if there's any type of scheme adjustments but just purely based off of his injury and wanting to keep him out there. Um, and if you're going to that extent, clearly he's hobbled pretty hobbled yeah i mean i think at the point where you're thinking about changing the game plan it's not worth doing like let's, let's stick with what we're planning on doing let's not try and change the defense to accommodate marlon humphrey at 80 percent or whatever yep 100 percent agree absolutely right let's move to the other uh, game yeah um the detroit lions i think are maybe the most fascinating one in terms of injuries uh in fact this game generally i think is probably more interesting on the injury front but Jonah Jackson, one interior offensive lineman, and then Frank Ragnow. Jackson, I think, is most likely out, but Ragnow is the key one. Mm -hmm. We saw him, it was one of the stories of the last game, him battling through the injuries and then, you know, still making a key block against Vita Vea at the goal line for a touchdown. Is Ragnow going to be able to go? Because I think if, if they don't have Jonah Jackson at one spot, they really need Ragnow. I 100% agree. I mean, that that is a crucial hit to this team if you're losing two interior offensive linemen especially all pro like Ragnow um, but he did not practice um, Thursday with left knee and left ankle but I have to say this watching that game and watching him get hit um, he obviously avoided severe injury obviously avoided tears um, of any magnitude but by the time he got hit the second time with his ankle I think that his reaction was just more out of like frustration. He was again. just like, dude, seriously, again? I just like, but he, he avoided the big stuff. So he's like, he's probably like, come on. Like, I just need a break here. Right. So I think that he is going to be sore. I think that they're going to have him braced. I think they're going to have his ankle taped. And I think he's going to be good to go, especially because Jonah Jackson's not going to play. I mean, that he has lateral meniscus cleanup. He's done. Um, so Jonah Jackson's not going to play. Frank Ragnow is going to play, which is huge because at least that, you know, on to his left, he's going to be able to have some control there, um, helping out um, any, any type of reserve player that's going to come in for Jackson. And I look at Ragnow as, I mean, He's if he toughed it out in the middle of a game getting injured like that, give him a week. I think he'll be okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask: is how much sort of signal is there in the fact that he was able to go out, like keep going through the game where he got hurt in, you know, and battle through the injury live, 
versus you know a week's time once everything's had a chance to settle down um is that i mean obviously it's a good sign that he was able to go as opposed to you're immediately shut down in the game but does it actually mean much that he was able to battle through that at the time because I mean, I know, like, I played on through a knee sprain one time for, like, an hour. It felt fine. And then later the day, later that day, I couldn't move anything because I'd probably made it significantly worse by playing yeah. on for an hour. Right. Yeah, it just really depends on the injury. Like, we know that Frank Ragnow is dealing with um, swelling and some discomfort. But, you know, the first name that popped in my head is we saw Tyree Kill earlier this season with an ankle sprain try to go back in, play the end of the game, and he was out the following week. And it's because you went back in and played right. and you made that much worse or at least more swollen and more painful to where it limited you the entire next week. Uh, granted, given the situation and being the game that it is, uh, I mean, I, I definitely see him playing even if he's in discomfort. Um, but for some cases, you know, let's say this was midseason, I could also see them holding Ragnow out for a week. So Another critical player uh, for this game they're potentially getting James Houston back. Mm -hmm. He was activated a while ago. He was activated sort of in time for last week's game, didn't end up playing in last week's game. Is this the game they're getting him back? Yeah, so he fractured his ankle in week two. I mean, he's been practicing with the team, um, elevated to 53-man roster. I think that they could get him back. And the reason that I kind of wanted to highlight James Houston is this is a very important player for them to get back yeah and you might not realize it just because of the name and i mean he's not a huge big name player but his skill set's pass rush and if he can get somebody on the other side of aiden hutchinson that's healthy that can rush the passer it's going to be a huge help for that defensive line um, because look at both of these teams it's a battle of the trenches and if you can get healthier um, as far as the opposite side of a really really skilled player no matter which side of the ball you're talking about and which team it's going to help so i think that um, him coming back is going to be huge he's not going to be playing um, as many snaps as he would have if he would have had a completely healthy season uh, but he's going to come back and play probably in those crucial downs if they decide to activate him for this game and even if he's not able to win one-on-one -on -one against trent williams you know one of the best left tackles in the game there's value to having him there as a cleanup weapon like his athleticism his ability to hustle and to get after the quarterback comes into play after Aiden Hutchinson has made the play mm -hmm. you know when he started to move the quarterback or if he's managed to flush him James Houston has a better chance of finishing that play than any other pass rusher the Lions have on that team so even if he can't win and get the pressure to begin with himself there's value to him being out there in, as a compliment to Hutchinson. Absolutely. And Hutch, Hutch has to be so happy that there's somebody else there that's pushing the pocket towards him. Right. From comparison, him always pushing the pocket towards the other defensive linemen. So I'm I'm interested to see if he comes back and if he plays. Um, I don't think he's, he's going to play a ton of snaps. Like, don't get me wrong, but in those crucial th third down um, pass plays that they need him, uh, he's going to be valuable for sure. And then for the 49ers, maybe the most critical injury debate for the entire week, um, Debo Samuel obviously mm -hmm. went out of the last game. The 49ers offense has tended to change dramatically when Debo isn't in the lineup. He's the big question mark with a shoulder injury all the way through this week. Is he going to play? Is he not going to play? If he plays, how close to Debo is it going to be? Yeah, so the thing with Debo is, just to clarify, this is the opposite shoulder that he injured initially. So this is um, x-rays came back, negative, no shoulder fracture, nothing like that. Um, but he is going to play. And he is limited in practice, but they're going to limit him just to make sure he can run through. 
His risk of re-injury though is a little bit higher. They they are talking about a little bit more of a AC joint sprain or possibly like um, contusion to his shoulder, which means that it was like impact related, right? So when you have a really aggressive wide receiver like Debo, he's going to have impact on that shoulder. I mean, the way that he plays, it is inevitable that he is going to either land or drop that shoulder into somebody. And that's where the injury risk shoots way up. Um, I think that it's greater than a 25% chance for him to get hurt again, but doesn't mean that he's not going to play through it. Right. I think that he is going to go into the game sore. I think that he's going to be playing with a lot of contact because that's how he plays football. And I think it's going to further his likelihood of re-aggravating that shoulder and maybe being pulled out again. How much stabilization can they do to a shoulder joint? You often, you see these guys all the time wearing these kind of giant harnesses mm-hmm. with the thing that comes down the bicep and like whatever strapping is involved. It's it sort of feel I've never had one of those on, but it feels fairly flimsy in terms of like it's a fairly difficult thing to lock down as opposed to an ankle, right? Where it just bends effectively in one direction, you can just tape the thing solid. It, the shoulder seems like a lot more of a complicated joint to try and nail down and tighten up yeah. if it's if it's unstable. Um, is that the case or do those things actually make a difference? They, I mean, they do make a difference, but it's a ball and socket joint. So everything about your shoulder is basically movement in each direction all right. around. But with like, look at Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook, Cook has been um, suffering from sublux shoulders for the past couple of years. And he has one of those big harnesses when after he subluxes his shoulder, but he can go back and play the next week. Um, and it gives you that stability just enough where like it can un- get the load and get the impact that your shoulder is gonna have onto it, but it's not completely securing it. The other thing they can do is a compression wrap on it. And so they can almost like tighten the capsule around. But this is football, and this is a wide receiver who needs his arms to move in more than just like, you know, this tight window inside of his body. So they're not going to like severely restrict it by wrapping it like crazy, but he's probably going to have some type of harness or some type of brace around that shoulder or even a wrap, but it's going to be something that he's also going to be able to move through. I wonder um, to what extent they will go in with the game plan that he's effectively a decoy more than anything else, you know, like having him there is the important thing him getting the ball is ideal but not necessarily the most important thing as long as we can threaten the Debo plays you know that's the critical thing if I wonder if if this week we see a lot more of Debo in the lineup but not actually getting the ball well you and I both know that like defense sees a wide receiver in the backfield like oh my gosh watch out particularly yeah if it's Debo I mean you're not gonna you know you can't just say he's injured we're not paying attention to this particularly if you're willing to give him the ball once or twice, but you know the game plan isn't going to go through Debo this week. Yep. Anytime he will be on a motion, across the line, reverse, everything is a threat with him. They will give him the ball in some of those, but I wouldn't be surprised too if they try to limit the amount of impact he's going to have on like certain run plays. And it wouldn't be surprised me if he only had one carry this week, but who knows if they put that carry on you know third or fourth quarter after Detroit kind of gets lax and doesn't think he's going to get the ball. I wouldn't be surprised about that for sure. All right, that'll do it for the uh, the boo-boo breakdown this week for the championship games, and that'll do it for the PFF NFL podcast this week. So big thank you to Vic, big, big thank you to Brad, and thank you all for listening. We will be back uh, after the games.